0: The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net.
1: What's up, church? All right, everybody, grab your Bibles, if you would, turn to John chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, just do us a favor, stick a hand up nice and high, wave it around as if there were no concerns, and we will make sure that you get one. If you don't have a Bible, just keep that, that is a gift to you, um, and we hope that the Lord will use that to teach you much about himself. We're going to be in John chapter 2 this morning. It's kind of a normal Easter passage, Jesus whipping people. That's what we're going to use. John chapter 2 this morning. While you're still turning there, I'm going to go ahead and open us up in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to come together and open your word. We thank you for the gift of worship and song and fellowship and gathering together. And now we pray, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would just come and speak and teach all of us. That you would use the words, Lord, of a flawed and frail man, um, Lord, but, but empower them by your Spirit. May they be truth and may they be, um, Lord, used by you to awaken affections for you, Jesus. Jesus, I pray you would get all glory and attention from everything done this morning. We're not here to make heritage's name great. We're certainly not here to make mine great. We're here to make your name great. So may you be lifted up, and may we see you as we look at this text together. Thank you for this, Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Oh, my rock, my king, my redeemer. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said. Amen. Amen. We're going to be in John chapter 2 today, beginning in verse 3, and we're going to look at the Passover of the Jews. Another uh, very big, common, religious celebration, if you will, much like what we are doing right now. And we're going to... What is that? (laughs) Is there a shooter? (laughs) Security! Oh, we're having, we've been having some technical stuff all morning. Let's pray it works, because I really have a treat for you guys that I want to be able to do, and I really hope it works. So, Lord, will you bless our forever cursed technological system. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 2 is where we are this morning. So in the same way that we all get together here in the Western Christian world at Easter, the Jewish people, for many, many thousands of years, have been gathering together at a feast called Passover. Feast called Passover, and this particular one we're going to look at this morning takes place on April 7th, A.D. 30. We're not here looking at just made-up stories. These really happened. That's a real date. These are real people. These things really happened in history. And on that particular Passover, something really significant took place that I think is very informative for us and encouraging for us and life-giving for us as difficult as the story may be in some ways. It starts out in John chapter 2 verse 13 and says this. The Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now like I said Passover is an important feast. It was the most important feast of the year of the Jewish religious calendar. Every Jewish man no matter where you lived was required to make the pilgrimage up to Jerusalem for the Passover feast, for the gathering to make sacrifices. Um, and Passover, it commemorated Israel's deliverance from slavery. Israel had been slaves in the land of Egypt for over 400 years. They were abused, they were beat down, they were not their own people. And yet, God had looked down upon them with mercy. He had heard their cries. He reached down to them, and he sent this man named Moses to go before the Egyptian Pharaoh. And many of you know the old story, let my people go, which really is more like, give me back my son. And Israel, he went and rescued these people. He drew them back and he led Israel out of this land where they were captive to a land of their own. And so the people of Israel gathered together to celebrate Passover, to remember their deliverance, to remember the sacrifices, to remember all of these things, to celebrate the beauty and the glory of the fact that God had rescued them and set them free. But it was also a time of sacrifice, not just celebration, but a time of sacrifice. Verse 14 says, In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers were sitting there. So here's what would happen. When the people would go to the temple, they would make great sacrifices there to God there at the temple. But as I said, every Jewish man was required, no matter where you live, to travel up to Jerusalem. So traveling back in that day was a little difficult, especially if you had to bring your sacrificial animal with you. If you had to travel across the Jordan or up from the Dead Sea area or from Galilee all the way to Jerusalem and you got to drag with you your ox or your pigeon, or your sheep, or whatever it was. It was very, very difficult, and maybe you were in a place you didn't even have one there. So you would go all the way to Jerusalem, and you know, sometimes things start out with good intentions. They start out for good reasons, and, and this is kind of what's going on here. They began this market probably outside the temple at first, but now it's taking place inside the temple where they would sell the animals that were there to be given for sacrifice. And that's a, conv- that's a service to the travelers. Man, these people have to travel from way on out. They're going to have to come with all these animals. Why don't we just sell them here? And then they don't have to deal with that while they're traveling. They can just buy the animal when they get here. And so that's what they would do. And there were cattle, there were oxen, there were doves, all sorts of different sacrifices. There were sacrifices for sin. Sacrifices for cleansing. Doves were sacrificed even for things like if you had a skin disease, you would sacrifice pigeons. There were all sorts of sacrifices that would be done. So they would just sell all the animals right there. But there was also now not just animals being sold, but there were these guys called the money changers that are there. Um, If you've ever traveled out of the country and you came with your American money and had to stop, like when we go to Uganda, about the first thing that we do when we get there is we go to a bank and we exchange our money from American dollars into Ugandan shillings, which is always intimidating because one American dollar, um, at the bank at least, is worth 3,500 Ugandan shillings. So if you go in there with just a couple hundred dollars and give it to them to exchange over, you come out with a stack of money like this. You're like, yeah, high roller. I'm putting in a backpack. You're like walking around like you need security. It's crazy. And that's one of the first things that we would do. But when we do this, here's one thing that we've learned over the years. We never exchange our money at the airport, ever. You know why? Because it's really expensive. They're taking advantage of the fact that Americans or travelers, wherever, have just got off the plane. And out of the name of convenience, there's a booth there. Hey, while you're here, we'll take care of your money exchange for you. But you don't get even close to the rate as you do if you go away from the airport, go into town, go to an official bank. You will get way more money for your money if you do that. And that's kind of what's happening here as well. Because you see, the temple sacrifices... The money that was exchanged at the temple, the temple taxes, all of those things had to be done in the local currency no matter what money you had. And so it probably started out again as something to be done out of convenience. We'll just set up a booth. All these travelers are coming. They have the wrong money anyway, so we'll just set up an exchange booth. But what was happening is that over time, people were completely being taken advantage of. The rates went higher and higher and higher There was incredible taxes put on there, and they were really just ripping people off. And this was being done by the temple leadership inside the temple, inside God's temple. And so the offense there is twofold. The the first thing being done is just, just plain corruption. It's just simple, immoral stealing, taking advantage of someone that they're doing. But the second thing that's even more important is that men there who are running God's temple have now erected, if you will, a barrier to worship. They've made it harder, more difficult for people to come and worship God. And this is a really big deal. You have to understand this because everyone is coming to the temple for one of two reasons. It may be really similar to why some of you are here this morning, as a matter of fact. Some people are coming because they have to. It's what you do. I'm Jewish. It's the Jewish holiday. Law says this is what we have to do. Mom's going to drag me by the ear if I don't do what i got to do. Whatever the case is, I have to do it, so I'm going to the temple because I have to. But other people are going there because they need to. They're broken. They're fallen. They have sin. They have deformities. They have difficulties. They are struggling. They are broken. And the temple is the place where things are supposed to kind of come back together to some degree. The temple is much more than just some church building here. The temple is almost like a little representation or a little snippet of Eden. You remember Eden in the Garden of Eden before the fall, before the snake and the apple and all that stuff? Everything was perfect. The the Jewish people would say that you had perfect shalom. And shalom doesn't mean just peace like because there's not a war. Shalom means all of your relationships are rightly ordered. Specifically, Your relationship between man and God is in order and in harmony. Relationship men to other men, men to other women is in order and is in harmony. And then relationship men and nature is in harmony. And we see this in Eden, do we not? The animals work with Adam, Adam's working with the environment, Adam and Eve are together, there's no sin, there's no shame, there's no no difficulty between them. And they walk in the garden and they have fellowship with God that is perfect and non-corrupt. It's what every man was designed for. But sin wrecked this, sin destroyed this. And even from Genesis three on, you see, as soon as sin entered into the picture, we had no more harmony with God. We had no more harmony with one another. We have no more harmony with nature. And there's so many people in that day and in this day that are coming to that temple looking to be fixed. And God has created this thing at this time called the temple that was such a big deal to the Jewish people because it was like a little snippet of Eden. It was the place where they could come and the presence of God was still there. It was the place where sacrifices could be offered and sins could be dealt with. It was the place where you would go to pray for cleansing and offer sacrifices for healing. Everyone that came there that was coming from a pure and genuine heart, they're coming because somewhere in those three areas they were broken and they wanted to come back to the temple and do whatever it took, including these animal sacrifices, to try to get the shalom that was broken. They were looking for peace. They wanted to be reunited with God despite their sin. They wanted to be reunited with men. They wanted to be reunited with nature. And so this was a big deal. Here's God creates this thing. And this is his place that that is evidence to all the world that despite the sin, despite the fall in Genesis, I'm not giving up on you. And here's how you'll know. I'm going to create this temple and my presence is still going to be there. And I'm still doing something. And now men have come and erected barriers around there. And they're charging people money. They're profiting off of it. And they're taking advantage of people who are simply trying to come and get back to where they were designed to actually be in the first place. And this is God's house? Well, not just anyone is coming. Everyone's coming. But there's this one in particular coming, as we see in this verse. Jesus is coming. And Jesus, he's coming because he is a Jewish man and in obedience with Jewish law, he's coming to the temple at Passover. But he's more than just a man. I mean, if you look just one page back to the left, you'll see in the Gospel of John, the very beginning, Gospel of John, verse 1, chapter 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. The Word was with God, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made, and in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Look down at verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt, or tabernacled, some translations say, among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John, from the very beginning, has already established this guy, Jesus, isn't just some guy. This is God himself. This is the Son of God, a member of the Trinity, who has now become flesh, and he's walking around. This is God coming to the temple where the presence of God is. This is his dad's house. And when he comes in there and sees what has taken place, he is ticked. Like... like like really ticked. Take a look at verse 15. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and he overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Think about this. This is one of my favorite stories about Jesus, just to think about it on this level. Some people think, man, Jesus got angry and he just couldn't handle it anymore and just sort of flew off the handle. That's not true. He made a whip. Like, that took time. How long does it take to, to make a whip? I got to think at least five, 10 minutes, right? At least? I mean, you got to find the stuff first. And the whole time he's walking around thinking, I'm going to make a whip. Should I do that? No, I, I'm, I am making a whip. That's what I'm going to do. Like, he's, he knows what he's going to do. He's thinking, he's over there making a thing. He's like, mm, all right. Watch me whip. What? What? Sorry. Sam was like, You're not really gonna do that, are you? I was like, Yeah, I'm totally gonna do that. <laughs> but that but he he makes this whip. Now now think about it. This is just like Easter, but infinitely more people. He comes into the room, if you will, there it's a courtyard, he makes a whip, and he drives Everyone out. He flips the tables over. He's driving them out with an authority and a righteous anger that, I mean, he's taking them all on. Our Savior is strong. Amen? That whole Swedish Jesus in the robe walking around like this all the time, uh uh. Jesus is strong, especially when it comes to standing up for his people. And standing up for the righteousness of his Father. Amen? So he takes these people on. He is not flying off the handle. He knows exactly what he's doing. And just imagine that. Like he does it in such a way. Look, they had temple security. And no one arrests him. Like they kind of let it happen. No one arrests him. That's incredible. Just think about that. And even the disciples in the moment, they see it happen and they're reminded. John two seventeen says, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. This is a reference to Psalm 69, verse nine. I wish we had time to go down that road because there's some stuff in that Psalm that absolutely applies in other areas to what we're doing. That'd be a great devotional idea for some of you guys this week. I got two more later coming up. Just keep your pens ready. But we will avoid that rabbit trail for right now. They see this happening. They're remembering a Psalm that talks about zeal, zeal for my father's house will consume me. And they're already starting to connect some dots between these Old Testament writings and this man that they're seeing before them as he whips people in church, so to speak. And verse 18, he is challenged by some. It says, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Um, Modern translation to help us understand what they're saying. They're saying, who gives you the right to do this? Who do you think you are? You said what? My father's house? (laughs) You are claiming to be the son of God? Is that what you're saying? Who do you think you are? And they're demanding a sign, they're demanding evidence for this. Now, listen, everybody, listen to me on this. Because it's the same question people ask all the time. This is so appropriate everyone does this all the time. Listen, people love the idea of coming to Jesus when he's going to do something for us. I mean, earlier in the chapter, the story right before this, Jesus comes to a wedding. And the wedding's been going for a while, and they run out of wine. It's a good wedding. It's a party. And Jesus makes some 70 gallons of wine so that the party can keep going. He keeps the celebration going. There's joy. There's celebration. I doubt too many people saw Jesus do that in that moment and said, who do you think you are making more wine for our party? Get out of here. They were like, dude, come sit with me. What are you doing next weekend? You want to come over to my house? Like that's, right? We love when Jesus is doing something for us. But the moment Jesus wants us to do something for him, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? And this is a really important question. We love his gifts. We wrestle with his authority. We love his benefits. We struggle with his commands. Who are you to tell us how we should live with regards to sex or marriage or anything, any sort of morality or any sort of worship? Who are you to tell us? But watch. And the way Jesus responds to this is so important. Verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? So see, they have no idea what he's talking about. The Jewish people say, give us a sign. You show us who you, you, you're saying you're the son of God? Prove it. Who gives you the authority to do all this kind of stuff? And he says, I'll give you a sign. I'll give you a sign. The sign is, destroy this temple in three days, I'm gonna build it back up. And those Jewish guys have no idea what he's talking about. They're looking at the temple and they're like, are you kidding me? It has taken 46 years to build this, and you're telling us, tear it down, and in three days, you're gonna put this whole thing back together? Are you crazy? Now, at this point, the author of this account, the author of the Gospel of John, does something really important. And this is really what I want to focus on this morning. He does something that is a masterful literary device. Um, Sometimes... When an artist is doing art, whether it be a movie, a play, a painting, whatever it is, sometimes the artist will do things that sort of peel back the facade of what's going on. And, and they, they almost interrupt in a way that brings enlightenment or understanding, and sometimes almost including us into the art. I'll give you an example of another feast. Everybody knows Norman Rockwell. This is a painting of another feast, a really uh, famous painting from many years ago. We assume it's like a Thanksgiving feast, right? Right? Anybody notice anything interesting, maybe out of the ordinary, about this painting that's going on right here? If you, if you see it, yell it out to me. Bottom right corner. Who said that? What's going on in the bottom right corner? He's looking at us. It's almost like this really crafty, sly way built right into the painting where one of the subjects in there is like, yeah, we know you're there. But it's also intended to draw you into the painting like you're there, like you're part of the family, like you're there. So it's it's a tip of the hat to the fact that there's an audience, but it's done for a purpose. Now, this happens in modern art as well. One of our most most absolutely masterful modern art pieces has a great example of this. I'm going to show it to you right now. Will you guys roll this clip?
0: What's this? Looks like a red wire. Oh. I wasn't here before. What's a computer, do I mean, computers have wires. Yours doesn't. Doesn't it? No. It's going in a different direction than the other wires.
1: Dwight, I'm really busy. I can't talk about this anymore. feet of red wire at a flea market up by Dunmore High School. 20 bucks for the whole spool. Crazy. What a deal. Oh, he'll be fine. I made it up there. Uh, okay, now that's like Jesus, and here's how. Uh, no, but so in that, in that clip, the same thing happens. There's a story going on, and at a certain point in the story, there's an interruption, and this character Jim is now talking to us, and he starts telling us something that explains everything that's going on there in the background, gives you the backstory, and gives you understanding of what's going on in a way that we might not have had otherwise. And that is exactly, really, this exactly what John does here in this book, and this is so important. So so Jesus responds to them, tear down this temple and in three days I'll build it back up. And they say, what are you kidding me? You're gonna rebuild this temple and then there's this interruption and it's as if John comes in and says, okay, so guys, listen, really quick, before we get back to the story, um, they didn't know that he was talking about his body. They didn't understand this and neither did we. In fact, we had no clue what he was talking about. It wasn't until much later after the death and resurrection of Jesus that we went to ourselves, hey, do you guys remember what he said that day when he got the whip and drove those people out of the temple? Oh, that totally makes sense. So that's when we got it. You won't get it either until you get to that point in the story but just hang in there it's coming a few chapters later okay now back to the narrative and that's what happens in the story this actually happens look verse 21 John interrupts and says but he was speaking about the temple of his body when therefore he was raised from the dead his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken Now, John does this about four times in the Gospel of John. Bible study idea number two for the week, look those up. They're important every single time. There's something he's trying to show us, something he's trying to teach us. But in this case, he's saying, you won't get this till later. But later in the story, something's going to happen. And when it does, you're going to come back to this. And then it's going to make sense. It's almost like this built-in literary device that causes us to read the scriptures over and over and over and see these things that we would never seen before. But this one's really important. It's not random. It's brilliant. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, hey guys, everything in this story is pointing ahead to this event when Jesus is going to die and then he's going to raise again. But he's also saying this. Nothing in this story makes any sense until you understand that Jesus died and rose again. And church, that's huge for us to understand. Everything is pointing to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And everything has meaning once we realize the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Mitch, that got no amens, dude. Isn't that crazy? Let's try that again. Everything is pointing to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and nothing, here comes, makes any sense, get ready, until we understand the reality, or here it comes, of the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Now this is huge, because here's what he's doing, church. He's teaching us, let me talk to the Christians first. Christians, he's teaching us how to think and live like Christians. To think and live like Christians, to realize that everything points to Jesus, and Jesus brings meaning to everything. I mean, even in the scriptures here, consider the text. Jesus is the temple. These people are coming to the temple because they're broken and they want to be healed. Jesus is the one who's the temple. Jesus is the one who brings shalom. Jesus is the one who brings cleansing. Jesus is the one who heals. Jesus is the one who forgives, who stands for the broken and the poor. He's the one who fights for this earth. He is the Eden, the hope that we're waiting for. He's the one who will make all things right again. Everything is about Jesus. John Calvin himself said this. I'm just talking to the Christians right now. Listen, he says... He, Christ, is Isaac, the beloved son of the Father who was offered as sacrifice, but nevertheless did not succumb to the power of death. He's Jacob, the watchful shepherd who has such great care for the sheep which he guards. He is the good and compassionate brother Joseph, who in his glory was not ashamed to acknowledge his brothers, however lowly and abject their condition. He's the great sacrificer and bishop Melchizedek, who is offered an eternal sacrifice once and for all. He's the sovereign lawgiver Moses, writing his law on the tablets of our heart by his spirit. He's the faithful captain and guide Joshua to lead us to the promised land. He's the victorious and noble King David. By bringing to his hand all rebellious power to subjection. He is the magnificent and triumphant King Solomon. Governing his kingdom in peace and prosperity. He is the strong and powerful Samson. Who by his death has overwhelmed all of his enemies. This is what we should in short seek in the whole of scripture. Truly know Jesus. And the infinite riches that are comprised in him. And are offered to us by him from the good father. And if one were to sift through the law and prophets, he would not find one single word which would not draw and bring us to Jesus. And therefore, rightly did St. Paul say that he would know nothing except Jesus and him crucified. Amen, church? He teaches us how to read the scriptures. He teaches us that the cross and the resurrection are the keys to everything and that any and all meaning in life only makes sense through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So when I don't understand what's going on, when I don't understand why Jesus wants me to do something, I don't understand why Jesus commands me not to do something, when I don't understand why I'm going through the things that God has me going through, the resurrection is proof that God is for me. That I can trust him. The resurrection is proof that he has the power to get me through any of the things that I'm dealing with. The resurrection is proof that he has the power to make all things right in the end. The resurrection is proof that God always had a plan and nothing random was ever taking place in the first place. He has always been in control. He always will be in control. And I don't have to fear because my God is all powerful and the resurrection proves it. Suddenly everything in life makes sense when I realize the truth and people, it's absolutely true. Jesus Christ stood up, knocked the stone out of the way and walked out. He is alive. And that brings meaning to everything because he lives I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because he knows I hold the future. He holds the future. Let me try that again. I have been to a Baptist church for a really long time. Because I know he holds the future. Life is worth the living just because what? He lives. The resurrection gives meaning to everything. And nothing makes sense if it didn't actually happen. That's what John's saying. He's saying, hey, I'm pointing at something. And then when that happens you're going to look back on everything and go, oh, I get it. And it's going to be awesome. Amen, church? And one more thing, church, talking to the Christians here, the resurrection, that news is a mandate to tell somebody else. You guys ready for Bible study number three? Every time someone encounters the resurrected Jesus, the first thing they do is go tell somebody. You think God's telling us something? News that good you don't keep quiet. Amen, church? That's why we celebrate it. That's why the shouting in resurrection lyrics of songs should happen every Sunday. Amen? Amen. Starting now. Heritage, amen? Amen. This is true. The resurrection brings meaning to everything. And now for those who are here that may not be Christians, please hear me. Please hear this. Don't worry about the rules. What? What? You came to church and the pastor said, don't worry about the rules. Don't worry about the the, the religion. Don't worry about what you got to do. And don't worry about what you don't got to do. You only have to worry about one thing. Look at Jesus. Just know who he is. Know what he did. Know that he is absolutely alive because you've got to understand something. All these people came to the temple because they were looking for something. Either pride and self-righteousness to show that they did all their churchy religious stuff or desperate for healing. Desperate for forgiveness. Weighed down by the understanding of their own sin and their own shame. And for that one time each year, they could come and temporarily get it all taken care of, but it's only temporary. And then Jesus comes, fashions a whip, and at least for a time, we don't know how long, I don't know how long it took them to get the tables put back up. I don't know how long it was until Jesus left himself and things got back to quote-unquote normal. But for a minute, he shut everything down, and everyone there was looking at him. And that'll preach. He shut down the religious activity. He shut down the sinful activity. And everyone looked at him. And when they said, give us a sign that shows we should obey anything that you tell us to do, he said, in three days, I'll raise this temple back up. And he was talking about his body because Jesus is the better temple. Jesus is the one who dies that we can have our relationship with God restored and have shalom in our relationship with God. Jesus is the one who died that we might have shalom in our relationship with our brothers. All the talk in the world about everybody getting along and everyone love each other and all that kind of stuff that you hear all the time, it's absolutely true. It's absolutely needed. But the only place that we're ever going to find that it absolutely happens is if people come to Jesus. And then Jesus died that we might have shalom with nature, with our own physical frailties and our bodies and Dealing with things like death and suffering. Jesus died that he might be life for you. But he's also God. He also has authority. And and he's king. And one day he will return. Not with a whip but a sword. And out of love for you. Not trying to scare people into the kingdom of God or anything, but out of love for you, we want to warn you, our king is good, our king is gracious, but time is short and our king's coming again. Look to him. Everything you're looking for in life is found in him. Everything. The resurrection to you is hope. The resurrection to you is proof that whatever you're looking for that always leaves you short whatever it is in your life that's just killing you, whatever it is that you're dealing with and you know inside, you know inside that you're broken, the resurrection is, is it's like a, a proof of purchase that Jesus says, now follow me. I got this. I'm the one that will bring you peace. I'm the one that will bring you shalom. In just a minute, some people are going to come forward. They're going to go over here and do a religious activity that's called baptism. They're going to get in this water. If you've never seen this before, it's going to be really weird. But they're going to come up here, and they're going to get in this water, and we're going to pray with them, and I'm going to talk with them, and at a certain point, I'm going to lower them down in the water, and I'm going to lift them back up. And this is something that Jesus and the Scriptures gave to us years ago as a public proclamation to everyone else. It, it, it's a testimony that says that I believe in the reality who Jesus is, what Jesus did. It's it's even pictured. It's like a tomb. It's like you're lowering him into the tomb in the same way that they placed Jesus in the tomb. But he didn't stay there. He came back up. And, And in that act of baptism, we are identifying ourselves with Christ. And the scriptures say we are raised to walk in a newness of life. It's a picture of being reborn. Because wouldn't we all start over if we could? And it's this hope that is given you. And look, you're gonna hear a story in just a minute of a man and his family who are about to be baptized and about what the Lord did in their life. I don't know your story, but all our stories are different and yet all our stories are the same. Because I'll tell you right now, there's only one perfect man. I am a flawed, broken, sinful man. And in my life, I have sought life and fulfillment in every possible area. From pleasures to prestige, relationships, lusts, you name it, money, all of it. And all of these things in my life and in the lives of so many people that are in this room that call in the name of Jesus Christ is a testimony of the death that's at the end of all of those things. But it's also a testimony to the fact that the only place we ever find shalom and peace is in Jesus Christ. You'll never get there on your own, but he'll take you there. Amen? Let me introduce you to my brother, Damon.
0: I had a cardiac arrest July 18th. We were riding down to California on our motorcycle and decided to pull over and get some water because I wasn't feeling well. I fell down and busted my head on the floor, and at that time, stopped breathing. My wife gave me CPR for 11 minutes before emergency services could get there. We were in the middle of nowhere, and where I decided to pull over was the only exit that actually had volunteer firemen there within a 30-mile radius, so we were pretty fortunate. I've always been in touch with God. I've always knew that there was a higher power. I grew up Catholic and had kind of been in and out of church prior to my cardiac arrest. Just wasn't being as close to God as I would like. And after my cardiac arrest, some of the things that I've gone through and noticed after, it's really brought me closer that I've never been before. One thing never changed was the love and support from people through the church. I had a lot of people that showed up to my house while I was sick in bed. People that I did not know would always come over and pray with me, brought me closer to God. Between Pastor Jeremy and a lady named Stephanie, they really gave me the hope and faith that I needed. Pastor Jeremy, I never met him before. He came over to my house and prayed with me and really had some inspiring words that gave me hope, a hope that there was a God there and there was a a God that was gonna hold my hand and guide me through as long as I had faith. And Stephanie was really inspirational to me because she had just gone through the same incident and to see her at my house praying with me was just really inspirational. I really just felt God speaking to me. Before my cardiac arrest, God definitely wasn't a priority. My family, I wasn't putting them first. God has really spoke to me. He's made it to where my family is first and foremost. God is first and foremost of my priorities. This baptism for me, it's almost like a fresh start. It's learning why Jesus died on the cross why we sin and why he forgives us and my kids we didn't force them we didn't ask them they want to do it they want to be baptized and they want to be Christians and if anything that's the best gift of all of this and this cardiac arrest is to see my family grow and follow the Lord and I want to be Stephanie I want to be Pastor Jeremy I want to be the guy that helps those that don't believe I don't have faith. I'm just excited to be a Christian and I'm excited to give back and it's just a completely different life.